Chapter 4, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 4, Part 3. 4. While Alexandria was laboring to unite religion and philosophy, a very different school was dominant in the neighboring province of Roman Africa. Greek seems to have been commonly understood in Carthage, but Latin was evidently the usual language of society, while the country folk retained their native Punic. The African was the first Latin church. There first we find a Latin literature in the service of Christianity. It has the rhetorical character which we find in the Roman literature of a purer age, vivified and at the same time deformed by the gloomier genius of the Punic race. A translation of the scriptures into this vigorous dialect supplied the wants of the faithful in the African cities, and was for some generations the Bible of Latin Christendom. The earnest mysticism which was to become Montanism flourished among the half-Oriental Africans. In this church, the most famous name is that of Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus, as characteristic a product of Roman Africa as Clement was of Alexandria. Tertullian was born, the child of heathen parents, about the year 160 at Carthage, at that time one of the most considerable schools of literature in the Roman Empire. He understood and wrote Greek. He was a skillful rhetorician and, as his works abundantly show, well acquainted with Roman jurisprudence. Converted while still young to Christianity by the sight of the constancy of the Christian martyrs, he became a presbyter of the church and its most vigorous literary defender. If, as Jerome tells us, was the case, he reached a good old age. His days were probably prolonged into the fourth decade of the third century. With much of the imperious character of the Roman and the subtlety of the lawyer, he has an impetuosity of temper and warmth of imagination which are perhaps due to Punic blood. Christianity probably has rarely won a more eager and uncompromising convert. In his controversial writings, which are many, he upholds the Catholic faith, according to his conception of it, against pagans, Jews, and heretics in his practical works, Christian simplicity against corruptions of a luxurious society but in his polemics he is still the stern moralist. In his practical treatises he is still the controversialist. His excellencies and his faults alike arise from his vehemence and his incapacity for compromise. He saw, as he thought, the true doctrines of the church in danger from the speculations of philosophy, and the wisdom of this world became the object of his keenest scorn and irony. The academy has nothing in common with the church. It was natural, therefore, that he should contend earnestly against Gnosticism, a development of the cosmic theories of paganism. For himself, he prefers that which is above reason, and nothing is too marvelous for his eager faith to receive. He is realistic to the verge of materialism. Incorporeal is with him the same thing as non-existent. The soul of man, God himself, must have some kind of body. And again, seeing the life of holiness in danger from social relaxation, the spirit in danger of being quenched by ecclesiastical routine, he inveighed against all the pleasures of sense, however innocent, 
and at last joined the party of the Montanists, where he hoped to find more of the spirit and greater rigor of life. In theory, he paid great respect to the authority of the leading churches, but he was not the man to accept any authority, however exalted, which clashed with his conception of the truth. Christ, he says, called himself truth, not custom. The great representative of the Church of Africa in the third century was Cyprian, Thascius Cilicius Cyprianus, the son of wealthy parents, after enjoying for a season the pleasures of pagan society at Carthage, where he was a rhetorician and teacher of rhetoric, sought refuge in the church from the emptiness of the life which he was leading. In the glow of religious feeling immediately after his baptism, he distributed a large portion of his wealth to the poor, and all his life long he was distinguished for his munificence. Within two years of his conversion, he became a presbyter in Carthage, and shortly afterwards, though reluctant, recognized the voice of God in the voice of the people who hailed him bishop. Pleading a divine command, he fled in the persecution of Decius, though from his retreat he still continued to administer the affairs of his church, asking pardon that in the extraordinary emergency he was unable to consult the presbyters and people as he was ever wont. Returning after a year's absence, he found his path full of obstacles. The small party which had opposed his election rose in rebellion against him, and the confessors in the late persecution claimed, by their mere word, to readmit to communion those who had fallen by conformity to paganism in the troublous time. Again, he was vexed by the conduct of the Bishop of Rome on the question of the rebaptism of heretics. He had to maintain the authority of the bishop, on the one hand against those of his own people who impugned it, on the other against a foreign power which claimed to override it. In the midst of these disputes, the great pestilence of the year 253 fell upon the empire, and with special severity on the province of Africa. The good bishop was probably happier in succoring the distress of the terrible time than in disputes about discipline and doctrine but his disputes and his beneficence alike came to an end in the persecution under Valerian, when he met his death with quiet courage. He was beheaded at Carthage in the year 258. The first African bishop, says Prudentius, who suffered martyrdom. Cyprian called Tertullian his master, and so he was. He borrowed from him both thoughts and expressions, but he has neither the genius, the passion, nor the imagination of his teacher. His ability was rather that of ruler and administrator, and in this capacity he showed great moderation in a time of feverish excitement. In his style we find neither the glowing fancy nor the energetic brevity of Tertullian, but it is clear and flowing, rising occasionally into eloquence and imagery. On the whole, he gives us the impression of an able, cultivated Christian man, sincerely religious but incapable of fanaticism. Among African writers may be reckoned Commodian, the earliest representative of Christian Latin verse. Born a pagan, he was converted, as he himself tells us, to Christianity by the reading of Holy Scripture. It was when Christianity had been already about 200 years in the world, in an age of persecution, that he wrote his Equipments Against the Gods of the Nations, 80 acrostic poems and hexameters, in somewhat barbarous language. He also wrote an apologetic poem against Jews and Gentiles. It is in Commodian's work that we have the first specimens of that which was destined to prevail in modern Europe. 
first written solely according to accent, with no regard to the quantity of the syllables. His style is barbarous and prosaic, though not without a certain rough vigor, but his matter, especially his prophecy of the two antichrists and the Lord's final victory, is sometimes of considerable interest. Some half-century later than Cyprian, we meet with a distinguished African man of letters, Arnobius. Of him we know no more than that he was a teacher of rhetoric at Sicca in Africa, and that after his conversion to Christianity, he wrote seven books against paganism. He is very successful in showing the absurdities of heathen worship and the follies of the attempts to rehabilitate it, but he evidently holds opinions not compatible with the purity of Christian doctrine. He seems to have been drawn into the church partly by a strong reaction from heathenism, partly by the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life which Christianity proffered him. He could not accept philosophy as a substitute for religion. From Arnobius we naturally pass to his pupil, Lactantius Firmianus, though a considerable portion of his life was passed in Europe, and his style betrays no African provincialism. His book on The Handiwork of God is probably the first Christian treatise on natural theology. His principal work on First Principles of Things Divine, though primarily apologetic, is really an introduction to Christian doctrine. He is not content, like some of his predecessors, with a merely negative position. The great contrast between the morality of Christianity and that of heathendom he treats with a special vigor and success. And if we can detect here and there some weakness in his grasp both of theology and of philosophy, his work must have rendered an important service in the critical time in which it was produced, just on the eve of the victory of Christianity. His style is clear and pleasant, certainly superior to that of the best of his pagan contemporaries. In his treatise on the deaths of the persecutors, we have the first attempt to trace the judgments of God in history, especially in the history of his own time, from a Christian point of view. 5. We now come to the one apostolic see of the West, the great church of Rome. Here there is a large Jewish colony, and here, even more than in other cities, the Hebrew community drew around its proselytes and frequenters of its worship of all ranks, from a slave to an empress. Among Gentiles, proselytes, and Jews, many converts were found. It soon became probably the most numerous of Christian churches. Tacitus describes the Christians of Rome as a vast multitude in the days of Nero, and in the 3rd century Cornelius, its bishop, speaks of the Roman church as containing a very large number of laymen, 46 presbyters, and 1,500 widows and other distressed persons maintained by charity. The Judaic Christians for some generations did not fully harmonize with their Gentile brethren, but it was in Rome more than elsewhere that differences were assuaged and compromises made. For representatives of all nations and all forms of thought found their way to the central city of the world, and the Roman Church early manifested the capacity for ruling, organizing, and amalgamating, which had long distinguished the Roman state. And Rome was famed for beneficence. The days of St. Lawrence, when the poor of the great city formed the treasure of the church, were not as the days when a Borgia or a Medici squandered vast wealth on luxury or art. The common language of this mixed multitude was Greek. Greek was the language of its principal writers, 
and Greek inscriptions appeared on the tombs of its bishops as late as the year 275. Victor, A.D. 189, is apparently the first Latin bishop of Rome, and he is also the first who is known to have had relations with the imperial court, and to have claimed for his see something like universal dominion. The real origin of the Roman church is utterly unknown, but in very early times St. Peter and St. Paul came to be regarded as its founders. The belief that the former had preached in Rome may possibly have arisen from the Jewish Christian fiction in which the two Simons, the Apostle and the Magus, play a prominent part, but it is much more probable that the legend was localized in Rome in consequence of St. Peter's actual presence there. The succession of the early bishops is involved in great obscurity. Irenaeus gives the order Linus and Anclitus Clemens, and in the same order the names appear in the canon of the Roman liturgy, though Cletus is substituted for Anencletus. A Clementine fiction makes St. Peter hand on his authority directly to Clement. The ancient Boucherian catalogue, almost certainly derived in its earlier portion from Hippolytus, gives the order Linus, Clemens, Cletus, Anencletus while the apostolic constitutions put into the mouth of St. Peter the statement that Linus was ordained by Paul, and Clement, after the death of Linus, by Peter himself. It has been suggested, as a way of reconciling these various statements, that there may have existed at the same time in Rome Jewish and Gentile communities, having separate bishops who derived their authority from St. Peter and St. Paul respectively. On the whole, however, it seems probable that the list given by Irenaeus is the correct one. In the early part of the third century, we have a curious glimpse at the life of the Roman Church through the writings of Hippolytus. If he is to be credited, Callistus, a runaway slave, a fraudulent bankrupt, and an escaped convict, found it possible to worm himself into the confidence of the weak bishop Zephyrinus and to become his successor. This is, however, the story of a vehement opponent and probably an anti-bishop. But whatever may be said of Callistus, it is certain that the character of the early Roman bishops generally cannot have been bad. They were not distinguished as writers or theologians, but many were martyrs. And men nurtured in Rome, hearing representations from all sides, were naturally more capable of comprehending the general bearings of a question than the worthy men who occupied analogous positions in provincial towns. At the same time, they were devoted to the interests of Rome. The first writer of the Roman Church of whom we have any remains is its bishop Clement, possibly identical with the Flavius Clemens who was put to death by Domitian. His only extant work is a letter, simple in style and abounding in Old Testament quotations, written by him, as the official organ of communication with foreign churches to the Church of Corinth. The main purpose of the letter is to restore the harmony which had been broken by dissensions and by a revolt against the authority of the presbyters, hence the duties of meekness and of submission to those who are in authority over them and bear it blamelessly are especially insisted on. The subject of the resurrection and old difficulty in the Corinthian church is also touched. There certainly seems to be a tone of authority in some of the expressions used, and the mere fact of such a letter being written, probably at the request of those who were aggrieved, seems to imply that Rome was recognized by some, at least, as a superior authority. 
Another production of the Roman Church is the curious work of Hermas, which bears the name of The Shepherd. He writes as a contemporary of Clement, but the writer of the Muratorian fragment describes him as the brother of the Bishop Pius, 142-157. There is, however, nothing in the book incompatible with the earlier date. The book consists of a series of dream visions, divine commands given to him, and parables or solemnitudes related in an artless style which is not unattractive. The writer laments the corruption and the worldliness of the church. He warns men of the wrath to come, when the dross will be purged away. He beseeches them to repent while repentance is still possible. He distinctly claims to be a prophet, and his position is in some respects not unlike that of a Montanist, though Tertullian in his later days violently blamed his want of Montanistic rigor. There is nothing in the book which savors Judaism, nor indeed any mention of the Jewish law. It evidently made a great impression on the church, for such men as Irenaeus and the Alexandrian Clement quote it as scripture or revelation, and a fresco in the Neapolitan catacomb represents the tower building which Hermas describes. Caius, a presbyter of Rome, who is said to have written in the days of Zephyrinus, refuted the tenets of Montanism in a controversy with Proclus, the head of that sect in Rome, appealing against heretical novelties to the authority of a church which was able to point to the trophies of St. Peter and St. Paul, and denying that the expectation of a thousand years' reign of Christ on earth had the authority of an apostle. Nothing is known of his personal history, and it is very possible that the name Caius is simply that of a person in a dialogue written by Hippolytus. This Hippolytus is the most remarkable man of letters produced by the Church of Rome in the first three centuries. He was a pupil of Irenaeus. Besides his great work against heresies, numerous fragments remain, exegetical, apologetic, controversial, and dogmatic. He was also a chronologist and compiled a chronicle, and his statue found in the Via Tibertina in 1551 has engraved upon it the paschal cycle which he drew up, as well as a list of his writings. It can scarcely be doubted that he was the bishop of some portion of the Christians in Rome, and it is clear that he regarded Callistus as the mere head of a school and not as a Catholic bishop. In the book against the heresies, the writer, starting from the assumption that heretics did not find their support in Holy Scripture, but in astrology, in pagan mysteries, and in Hellenic philosophy, proceeds first to examine these systems and then the heresies, Gnostic and Monarchian, which he believed to have grown out of them. His work is consequently of considerable importance for the history of philosophy, as well as for that of the thought and life of the Church in the early part of the third century of which otherwise we have little contemporary evidence. These wrote in Greek, but it is possible that the first of the long array of Christian Latin writers may also belong to Rome. Minucius Felix, an advocate converted in middle life to Christianity, was probably a Roman, and evidently shared in the best culture of his time. Regarded simply as literature, his work is superior to those of his pagan contemporaries. As to his date, however, there are great diversities of opinion, some maintaining that he lived before Tertullian, who made use of his work, others that he lived in the quiet days of Alexander Severus, and made use of the work of Tertullian, a much more original mind, 
in the compilation of his dialogue, Octavius. End of chapter 4, part 3.